I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, The Hackitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Hackitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Hackitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program at hackitude.org. I'm delighted today to be joined in the Hagitude sessions by Stella Duffy. Now, Stella currently is completing a doctorate training in existential psychotherapy, and her research is in the embodied experience of postmenopause. As well as her private practice, she has worked in NHS cancer psychological support, hospice bereavement support, and she's currently working with a low-cost community mental health service. But I guess the reason why I'm familiar with Stella is that um, alongside her therapy work, she is an award winning writer of 17 novels, over 70 short stories, 15 plays. And she's worked in the theatre for over 35 years as an actor, director, facilitator and improviser. Not surprisingly, she was awarded the OBE for Service to the Arts in 2016. She's been active in equalities and inclusion work in arts and LGBTQ plus communities for many decades. As if that wasn't enough, she's also a yoga teacher and leads regular workshops in yoga for writing. Now, one of the reasons why I'm really interested to talk to Stella is that she has been postmenopausal since chemotherapy for her first cancer in her mid-30s. And she has a particular interest in life after menopause, which, of course, as we know, is a conversation that is sadly lacking in the prevalent current discourse. So, Stella, that's that's quite a lot to have packed into your life. And <laughs> welcome to uh, the podcast. Thanks, Sharon. Well, I'm four months off 60 and my first novel was bought just before my 30th birthday. And, I, and I've been working, you know, since I was 17. So it doesn't feel like a lot at this point. But when it's said in a here's what this person's done, that I know it sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so um, to begin with, as I always try to do, we are talking in the context of my latest book, Haggitude. This is called The Haggitude Sessions. And one of the things I always like to ask my guests is what that word hag means to you, what it evokes in you. Is it a kind of a visceral, oh, mm. no, we can't possibly? Or is mm. it something a little bit more positive? Well, unfortunately, I think I, I don't think it warms me. And there are words that do. Um, Crone warms me, although I've heard you on one of your podcasts saying that Crone didn't warm you and Hag did. And I think these things, you know, just they just read differently to, to different uh, people of us. Hag, I think they might because it's so so guttural, so Anglo-Saxon sounding, maybe, I don't know. It, it sounds a bit dismissive. And I know we can reclaim things. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here being a, a queer 
dyke, gay, all of those things. I'm very happy with any of those terms. I haven't yet got around to reclaiming hag, but now that I'm halfway through Hagatube, and I apologise for not being all the way through Hagatube, which is beautiful, and all your listeners, I'm sure, already have it, but if they haven't, go order. I, I'm going to do my best to reclaim it because you you make some pretty damn compelling arguments for it. Well, thank you. I think to me it was very much that sense that hags specifically, you know, can mm. can range from midlife all the way through to the end, whereas I still think of crone, if you look in the context of European folklore at least, being very much about the, you know, the latter part yeah. of midlife. And hag is very much a word that the women who are described as hags are pretty much sufficient unto themselves. You know, they're not defined by relationship to anybody else or to anything except whatever it is their unique gift that they specifically embody. So I think that's probably why I'm a little bit of a, a fan of it. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And and I am very aware that, that Crone is perceived as older still. Um, I like how Jodie Day speaks of herself as an apprentice Crone. I'm, I'm enjoying that, that she's doing with that. And I think we can find variations on words. But you see, the thing is, I was born in a council estate in South London and then we moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand when I was five years old, where my father was from and he'd come over during the war and my mum had seven kids. And where we grew up, where I grew up, was was largely Māori, Polynesian, Samoan, Tongan, Niuean. And in Māori culture, Māori tanga, there is a place for the older woman and it's a revered place. And we are called kuia, which means queen just by virtue of our age and so because of where I grew up which was not that Maori culture was exoticized it was you know the kids next door it was the kids I went to school with it was just the ordinary culture in which I was was raised um, I understood that there was a place for older women and it was a place of value and that Maori tanga Maori culture really respects older women as do all the Polynesian cultures. So I think I got a bit of that, which meant that I wasn't so, I don't know if I wasn't fearful of aging, but I certainly wasn't so dismissive of it because I understood that we too could hold a really valuable place in our aging and our old age. Yeah, and that's really important, isn't it? I mean, I, I grew up in the, kind of on a council estate or around a council estate about the opposite end of the country from you mm. up in the, the far northeast. And the women there, as I, I write about in Hagitude, were very strong. Mm. The old women were very mm. strong. So in theory, you know, they didn't have any power because there were they were women, but yes. their moral authority uh, <laughs> and their ability to, like, you know, flay the skin off someone with a choice mm. comment mm. had had a gave them credibility and authority mm. in, in quite a different way so I too never really feared being an old woman and it was quite a shock to me when I got out into the wider world to find that it wasn't like that everywhere but uh -huh. I do have a, a great uh, kind of longing for the kind of elder woman respect that is given in indigenous cultures mm. other than mm. our own mm. there's a there's another lovely word in Maori and it's fire w-h-a-e-a -A, and it's it, it translates as auntie. Um, it's often used as an honorific. But in English, it sounds like fire, which yeah. is just so cool. So when you are addressing someone as fire, Sharon, you would be according you some status as a as a older woman, and you would be according your life some status. And I just love how the transliteration makes it sound like fire. I think that's delicious. That is very wonderful. And yeah. I have to 
I can't remember whether I have mentioned this on another podcast before, but I came across through um, one of our Hecatude team members, the idea from the San people, we would mm-hmm. um, call them, of South Africa, what used to be called uh, the Bushmen mm-hmm. people, that they have a particular thing whereby older women who do not have children are believed to have special powers. Oh. to be be special because they haven't put I guess all of that creative energy into creating physical life so in Mm -hmm. the context of uh, I know that that is an interest of yours Mm -hmm. and of course Jodie's who we've Mm -hmm. had as a guest on the podcast previously it just it just makes it feel again something very special that we are missing in our culture when we don't think in this way Oh, yeah, the, the denigration of those of us who are not mothers, for whatever reason we're not, is, I mean, it's so part of the difficulty, isn't it? Because mothers in our culture are both lauded and denigrated at exactly the same moment. You can't, you, you know, you're not a proper woman or a graduate woman unless you're a mother, but at the same time, you can never be a good enough mother because the world will always judge you. Whereas those of us who are not mothers are so separated off. And I'm not sure that women do that to ourselves. I think culture does it to us. And unfortunately, it's difficult being in either place and we find our camps. And one of the things that I've found really exciting about menopause and post-menopause work is seeing mothers and not mothers come back together, which I think is thrilling and really hopeful. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. So talking about menopause, mm. your your menopause was induced yeah, as yeah. a consequence of chemotherapy when mm-hmm. you were quite young. And I yeah, know yeah. that there are going to be many, many women listening who had that experience and it it is interesting to me that there is so little I want to say support for them but there's actually so little conversation around it and so people are constantly looking for some insights you know into that condition and how they can work their way through it so tell us something about your own experience of that. Yeah, so I was 36 when I was diagnosed so I've had breast cancer twice once at 36 and once at 50. I was 36 when I woke up one morning with a large lump under my right breast. It hadn't been there the day before. It was there that morning. We don't have uh, breast cancer familiarly, not on my matrilineal side. So the GP was certain there was nothing wrong. Uh, By the way, most people don't. It's only 30% of breast cancers that are family. But that's not the cultural story either. The GP was certain nothing was wrong, which just assists. So it took six to eight weeks to be diagnosed. What Gosh. was particularly, yeah, which was horrendous. What was particularly difficult about that is that I, I just knew I had a knowing. <laughs> My body knew what was going on for it for me, and I just, I just knew that I wanted this out of my body. The other difficulty is that my wife and I, we'd been together by then ten years already. Um, had been working towards having children. We had arranged uh, to to do this with a a dear friend, a very old friend of both of ours, a baby father, um, heterosexual man with with an older wife who had never wanted children herself. They were going to be the baby father and fairy godmother. Literally everything was in plan to the extent that my wife was to have had her first insemination on the Wednesday and I discovered my lump on the Friday before. So we were on the verge of becoming pregnant. We also knew that all three of us were super fertile. We'd had all the tests. My being diagnosed and put everything on hold. And then very quickly, it it was a grade three cancer when it was first discovered, which is pretty large and had already been growing its own blood vessels. And I mean, it was just ghastly. 
So I then that year um, had surgery followed by six months of chemotherapy followed by two months of radiotherapy. And, you know, these days treatment is a, not always, but often slightly less aggressive. But what was very clear right from the start was that the chemotherapy I was about to have, three different chemos, was had an enormous likelihood of making me infertile. So I had five embryos um, retrieved very, uh, five eggs, sorry, retrieved very, very quickly between diagnosis, surgery, and chemo. And they were frozen. Um, years later, we tried with them, and all five of them died inside me, which was a whole other story and horrendous. And my I felt that my body was becoming a site of death. And I and I think that, and this does tie in because I think that when we are threatened with our own lives, and I, I know you've spoken about your own experience of, of illness. You know, my dad died when I was 25. My sister died when I was 18. My nephew who I was guardian for died, uh, you know, when I was um, mid thirties. I felt like I'd had a lot of experience of very close death. But it was quite different when it was my death. You know, just a really different thing. It was as if death had been beside me with those people. But when I was looking at my death, it came to face me. Mm. And so much as I had known all my life, um, certainly all my adult life, that I, I expected to and would have children at some point. And this is as a, as a queer woman knowing how difficult that was. But I'd still assumed I'd find a way. And this is sort of before the lesbian baby boom as well. And it wasn't very common then. This is 22 years ago. But it all had to go on hold. And what then happened was that I was tipped into an immediate menopause. So much so that I, I'd gone to my GP to have a Zonadex injection, which they're, they're absolutely still using um, for particularly young women with breast cancer and some ovarian cancers to entirely stop any hormones just in case, you know, while, quite often while they're working stuff out. I left the GP surgery and I was hit immediately. And I could tell you now, because it's still down the road from my house, where I was standing when I had my first hot flush. And it was... You know, flush is such a gentle word for that roaring internal, from my heart out, flush. Mm. And what was so painful about that was it was saying, okay, you've just skipped 10, 20 years. That's where you are now. And how, how did that impact you psychologically? Profoundly, except that except that I, it was so lonely. <laughs> I mean, it impacted me profoundly and no one talked about it. All mm. anyone who loved me was interested in was me staying alive, which is fair enough. You know, they wanted, they loved me, they wanted me. All anyone medically was interested in was keeping me alive. Again, fair enough, that's their job. But my life had changed utterly and profoundly. I was both immediately infertile I didn't know that the embryos would work or not but back then freezing was even more difficult than it is now and it was highly unlikely and because I know people always ask this I will uh, add the writer that my wife did try with our baby father miscarried while I was having radiotherapy and never got pregnant again either Good which is why we don't have children despite having been three very fertile people but what was difficult about this is that our culture is so terrified of death that the minute you mention cancer, 
Metaneurodegenerative, just multiple sclerosis, anything that might have death in it towards, you know, working towards death. All anyone ever wants to talk about is how you stay alive. And mm. we, we often don't talk about the implications of staying alive, about what we go through in order to stay alive. And you know, don't get me wrong, I am delighted that I made the choices I made then. I am thrilled to be here now. However, that came at a cost. And for me, the cost was being well postmenopausal. I mean, you know, the, there was some there there were obviously physical symptoms, but everything else, you know, my truth is that my menopausal symptoms were simply nowhere near as horrendous as my chemo symptoms. Um, that's what I was going through at the same time. It was the chemo that was that was making things worse for me. I know that that's not true for, for everyone who does this. But the difficulty was the emotional difficulty. It was it one of the things I've in in psycho-oncology working with with some younger women who are at this point themselves and it's really lonely you know the, the current discourse out there is that menopause happens when we're old which of course is a lie because globally the um the figure is at 48 and in britain it's 51 so you know that's not it might be the beginning of our old age but it's certainly not the 65 75 plus that we normally consider being old although i don't think it would hurt people to consider being 50 plus being old rather than clinging on to middle age <laughs> um but i i mean you know it's the last third of our lives let's welcome it but i do think it's a terribly lonely place because it's just not talked about the cancer's talked about sometimes and we're getting better at this our fertility and infertility infertility are talked about what is not brought into discussion is what it is to be catapulted into a state that we're not really emotionally ready for. And I know a lot of people in menopause feel they're not emotionally ready for what this means in terms of aging, in terms of facing our aging, taking us towards death. But if you're in your 20s, some some people in their teens, but certainly if you're in your 20s or 30s, it feels like being catapulted. Yeah, just because it is, it is catapulted. And how do you think that impacts you when really, as, as certainly as I have argued it and as mm. others have argued it, the whole point, I believe, of that great physical conflagration mm. that is menopause comes at that time of life in order to introduce us to a completely different journey, the journey of elderhood, which we, I believe, that we are all pretty much designed for. You know, women very much more than men because we have menopause, but it happens to all of us at around 50 or so that we are just moving from that outer journey of the first half of our lives, or the first two thirds of our lives in some cases, into that more inner search for meaning in the second half of our lives. And the whole physical palaver around menopause it seems to me is designed to take us to that place whether we think we are ready for it or not what happens when that physical conflagration happens very very much earlier how do you how do you how do you manage that how do you then yeah. find it when you are say 50 <laughs> or in your early 50s and you haven't got the physical conflagration to help you along sorry that's a lot of questions no, in no, one no 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 I, I i get it though um well personally my body went oh you forgot you were aging i know here let's have cancer again at 50. of course that's not how cancer happens genetically but my goodness that's what it felt like um mm -hmm. i had 
really done a lot of emotional work, a lot of body work um, in my mid to late 30s about, okay, how do I process this? Here I am alive. And I also had two, well, one in particular, very close friend, but a couple of friends diagnosed at the same time as me who both died before we were 40. And so it was pretty clear that I was fortunate to be alive, but that there was a massive cost. And for me, the massive cost was this enforced aging and my infertility. And so my when it came though to my 40s, I think I sort of just went, oh, I'm alive. And I threw myself in to, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of performance work, a lot of stuff that I absolutely loved. But and, because I don't want to say it just as a but, um, less self-work, less attending to where I was, what was going on for me, where I might need to be paying attention physically. I felt like I was 55. I felt like I went from 36 to 55. Hmm. And my one of my supervisors, um, when I was working in the cancer department, who has worked in cancer for a very long time, said, you know, technically chemotherapy ages most people by about 10 years which makes sense um mm. but I sort of leapt forward a lot a lot and it was because of being menopausal postmenopausal. and then I was diagnosed with cancer again at 50 and that was like okay <laughs> right so I do need to pay attention to what's going on I didn't because I'm like that I had um and you know I'm also freelance Sharon I've been freelance since I was 18 years old and there's no sick pay for freelancers and there's no compassionate leave for freelancers and so it's not just that I'm an insane workaholic and achievement freak although I am both of those things a little bit it's also that I needed to keep earning in order to survive right and you know you mentioned my OBE earlier and that's for really for co-founding an organization called Fun Palaces that supports communities to create their own cultural events rather than behaving as if the, you know, artists like me, metropolitan artists from London or whatever big city, know best for communities. It's, it, it, Fun Palaces very much believes the communities know for themselves. And I thought we were doing a one-off. I thought I was creating with my co-director and co-founder a one-off. What happened was a lot of communities across Britain wanted to join in. To date, there's been nearly 800,000 people have joined in. It's now a fully-fledged 10-year-old organisation. So this thing that I thought I was start doing as a one-off became an organisation. And in the year before I was diagnosed again, I, I worked myself to the bone. Mm -hmm. Out of love, out of passion, out of being a working-class girl who got lucky and got to have a career in the arts, and our arts are still not inclusive in any way that they could be, um, not just for working class people, for people of colour, for disabled people, for women. You know, you look at it's still all led by by white middle class men. And I, I had I have always had a passion for change. But my passions for change and my passions for equality quite often have led me to not take care of me. Mm. in my desire to take care of the wider world to see change in my lifetime I have often pushed me too hard and that's not why I got cancer I really want to say this clearly however getting cancer for a second time at a time that I may well have had my menopause my you know inverted commas natural menopause because it's all natural right whatever happens to us it's in our nature it's happening to us 
I think that that was the same wake up call. And about 18 months after my second cancer, when I was recovering, having worked like a demon, literally demon, <laughs> um, I sort of woke up and I wasn't okay. And I had the great good fortune of asking for some support and it took them quite a while to find me somebody through the cancer department that I've been treated. But I was given an existential psychotherapist to work with for eight sessions. And I am now an existential psychotherapist mm -hmm. because it opened not just a door, but a wall for me. It was like a, literally, it was like there was a wall on my left-hand side that I'd never noticed I could slide aside. And I looked into it and I was like, oh, there's all of that. There's, and these are things that I'd loved in my teens and my twenties, um, magic things, things that are about our spirit, things that are of the earth and the sky and fire and water, which is my safe place, that the ocean is my safe place. And I've been ignoring them or visiting them rarely. And existential work to me is about choice. It's about acknowledging our essential loneliness, which is why loneliness is such an important part of the work. It's about knowing, you know, Death's here, it's not coming, it's here, and we can address it, we can welcome it, and our ageing is a, the clearest and most beautiful sign of that for, for those of us who are lucky enough to live this long. So it was all bloody hard. I do not want to underplay that, and I wouldn't wish it on another, I want to cry, I wouldn't wish it on another human being, and yet I am so fortunate and grateful to be sitting here talking to you where I am right now, knowing what I know. And I don't wish for other people to go through that loneliness and loss, which is why I do the work I do. But it has also been a different kind of menopausal experience for me. And I and I don't want I don't want people to be told their menopause is so terrible they should never have it. Yeah, it's interesting when you get, if you get through the rest of Haggitude, you'll find in the last chapter that I do talk very much about my own experience with a very aggressive form of lymphoma and befriending death as, as I thought of it as having never actually had anybody very close to me die at the point that I was diagnosed. And that sense of it being a gift not at all in a glib way, because it, it was quite frightening. Of course, you know, anything that is going to kill you within four months if you don't get treatment, mm -hmm. particularly in the middle of a lockdown, is very frightening. Uh, but I really said, I said in Haggitude, and I really do believe it, that I wouldn't give it back. Mm. And again, that's not in any glib way to say that it was easy. It wasn't easy. But it made me stop in a way that I don't think I properly did when I went through menopause. I raced through it like I raced through everything and <laughs> doing, doing, doing. And I think it took that menopause having failed to stop me. I do think it took something like that to to just shake me up and say, OK, every, everything and everything was different yeah. as a consequence of that. And it it is a gift. And again, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I would wish that menopause would do that for them because they would listen to their bodies mm -hmm. when when menopause was happening but it is a but it is a curious experience before we we move on i'm i'm mm. one of the things i'm interested in when we talk about death you said that 
you felt during your first cancer, I think it was, that, mm. that death now was facing you. Mm. How do you see death? Because, again, in Hagatude, I talk about death because I see the world this way as kind of personified. Yeah. You know, I think of death as old bone mother. She's yes. an old woman kind of just kind of breathing life back into the mm. bones, a mother of death, rebirth and all of that kind of malarkey. How, mm. how do you see death? And is it a question of befriending for you too or something different? My death looks like me. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know that until I saw it, but my death looks like me, uh, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, I was brought up very Catholic, but in a, a, thankfully, liberation theology version, social justice version that had space for women. So that was great good fortune. I understand that cycle of life and rebirth that people who have that belief do. I no longer do. I, it was very clear to me um, in my teens that Catholicism wasn't going to do it for me. And I spent quite a long time trying to find a practice that that did. Um, I've been practicing the Buddhism of the Sokka Gakkai for, oh God, 36, 37 years. Um, and it took me a very long time to find a Buddhism that believed that women could attain enlightenment in this life. Sadly, not all do. And I, there's very little interest in sort of reincarnation in the Buddhism that I practice. It's very much just about this is the cycle. This is the life you have. Live this life as if this is the one you, in which you could attain enlightenment and leave the next life to the next life. Um, so for me, my death is extremely present. It's very real. It is absolutely on its way. And that both gives me a, a grounding, <laughs> literally, in, in my extremely arthritic bones, which are made of the same stuff as the earth. But it also gives me a strong awareness of time and, you know, talking about doing as, as you just were and clearly both of us have been doers who have benefited from doing. I, I really don't want to say to people, stop doing, mm. but but being too also counts. And, you know, there's a, a Heideggerian term about being tranquilized in the stagnation of busyness. But sometimes we don't even notice that we're so busy that we're not really moving at all. And one of the things that I find, I'm moving my hands around in the air now. <laughs> There's such a flow um, in what, what I feel my life is now. And while at the times it still does feel like a push, I am getting better at finding the flow and pushing less. And I hope that I get to experience just flow before the death who is me not only turns to face me, but comes into me. But then perhaps that is what death is, being the flow. I, I genuinely don't know. I'm not very fussed. I don't want a painful death. I'm really fussed about that. I've had too many people I love have painful deaths. Um, I know that palliative care can be amazing. And were that to be um, in my future, I would enrol myself with a palliative team as soon as humanly possible. Hmm. Yes, certainly for those of us who've already experienced uh, serious cancers, it's one of those things that we do have to think about. Absolutely. And so the research that you're doing now, hmm. your embodied menopause research, can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so um, my doctorate is, is practical, theoretical 
and research. So it's a with a foundation it's five years in total, but and I'm just approaching the end of the third year, so of rather the fourth year in total. Um, next year, I hope to have finished my interviews. I've done uh, six of eight in ninety-minute, very in-depth interviews um, with people who are postmenopausal, because I'm really interested. Well, I'm interested in embodied work anyway. I, I came to performance as a, a dancer, as a baby gymnast, as an acrobat, as someone who loved the physicality of my body, a swimmer. I, I. I teach yoga, but only yoga for writers. And not because I don't like teaching yoga, but because there are plenty of amazing yoga teachers. I, I figured I'd just do the thing that, that calls to me and teaching yoga for writing calls to me. I, I'm i really interested in how we live in our bodies and, and in existential work. You know, um, there's an amazing existential writer called Mariana Ortega, and, and she speaks about the in-between and how we live in in between at all times, including people who feel that they are very much part of the culture, you know, the people for whom our culture is easy and for whom it works well. But for those of us who are less in it, and Mariana Ortega speaks of it as being a Latina um, feminist, lesbian woman living in America, um, for those of us who find ourselves in any in-betweens, we don't just live in the world, we live in worlds. And we are not just one being in the world, we are beings in worlds because we, we bring different shades of our being to how we are in the world today, to how we are in this world when I walk into a, you know, a very corporate arena, to how I am in this world when I'm in the sea. And so what I'm really interested in the embodied work is how we understand ourselves in and of the body. And what's been very interesting is to have to explain to people I don't mean symptomology. <laughs> so mm. if I'm asking about your embodied experience of postmenopause, I'm not asking when was your last hot flush, although mm. I'm not uninterested in that, but I'm asking about what is it like to be being you? To date, I've only inter interviewed women, but I, I would absolutely have welcomed interviewing a, a trans man or a non-binary person who, who also experienced menopause and was in postmenopause. What is it like to be being this self in a culture that denigrates and quite often despises our aging? That in particular with, with cisgendered women thinks that we should shut the fuck up when we get old. What is it like to be living in this body that now is wearing the cloak of invisibility that age grants us and can be very useful, but also horrendously disempowering for some people? And that's what's been so thrilling about these interviews because I have had, as I said, six so far, 90 minute interviews with people who are deeply different experiences, but playing with, exploring with, discovering who they are being, becoming in and of their bodies now, in bodies that have fluctuated. And see, I think this is so interesting around cisgender women's bodies, since you know 9 10 11 when our hormones begin to kick in our bodies fluctuate they come and go with whatever cycle you have and for some people it's a three-week cycle and for some people it's a seven-week cycle but with whatever cycle you have they come and go in postmenopause, that stops and what else begins to come and go is what excites me so what do we let go of what other cycles do we find when we're not so ruled by the cycle of our of our bodies and this can be a way in to support people who have had an early menopause, actually, because if they're, they're you know, it's, it, 
it's a real loss if you've got an early menopause to lose your menstrual cycle. It, it doesn't, for a lot of people in, in menopause, losing the menstrual cycle can be a massive relief. And the research shows, you know, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a white Western privilege thing to say, oh, it's so terrible to lose my periods at 55. Well, if you're a woman in a culture who has had no access to birth control, who's had seven children and is still terrified of getting pregnant at 50, dear God, it's a relief to lose your periods at 55. And there's such a lot of research that says this, and we really need to be careful how we speak about menopause when we speak about it being hard for us here in the relatively privileged West. But for the younger women, I think that if we can also say there are other cycles, there are other ways we can find ourselves cycling in our lives. I think that can help, particularly when we're missing that cycle because it's been taken from us by illness. That's an interesting point that I have also considered. Uh, I was very, very glad to see the back of a very painful several decades of, of menstrual cycle in my case and, and really did not miss a single bit of it at all. But I do find that I'm still very much attuned to moon cycles. I, you know, I'm still awake in the middle of the night when there's a very strong full moon. Oh, yes. Um, you know, so that that cyclicity doesn't go away. So what are you finding that people are telling you or discovering when you mm. ask them that question about other cycles that they might abide by or with? The thing that's come up quite a lot is that there are periods of stillness that certainly the people I've spoken to so far are saying that they are looking forward to that stillness growing. So there's still turbulence, there's still fire. I think it might take quite a, a long time for us to burn it all off, whether that's through hot flushes or night sweats or rage. Oh, okay, I just wanna say about the rage. I am. I do find it very disturbing that there is a biomedical assumption or belief or certainly a story out there that our anger at menopause is problematic. Mm. What I think our anger at menopause might be is just that we are not fucking putting up with this shit anymore. Absolutely agree. You know, we get to an age and it's like, really? I still have to put up with this crap? Perhaps it's okay to see that anger. And I'm not saying it's comfortable to feel one's anger. I know it's uncomfortable. But, you know, part of the reason it's uncomfortable is because we've been told that only bad girls are angry. It might be okay for us to experience our anger and to find the value in that. And I am very disturbed by this idea that we need to be medicating that away. I really am. Abs absolutely agree with you. I think particularly with anger, I think mm. the 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 acknowledging mm. it, allowing ourselves to feel it is really very important. For me, I think what the question is always, what comes then? How can you, uh -huh. you, how uh -huh. can you make it useful yes. and functional rather yes. than something that frightens you? Or, Absolutely. You know, so that change from mm. just lashing out in anger to proper righteous kind of wrath or rage. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but it is also okay to lash out sometimes. You of know, course, what we, well, we all do. But, you know, we, we we get bound in. Oh, so there's a, you know, Snow White's stepmother. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a part of the fairy tale that never gets talked about. In the original Grimm's fairy tale, I mean, not only was she first written in 1812 as Snow White's mother, and they changed it to Snow White's stepmother by 1817 because the public couldn't cope, but she doesn't just bring Snow White an apple like in the Disney. 
She brings Snow White a comb for her beauty, but she also brings her ties for her bodice. Mm. And the second, I think it's the second time she comes. I think the first time it's a comb, the second time it's ties for her bodice. And and that, you know, Snow White falls down and the dead faint and the dwarfs come home and save her. But before this is before the apple. I, I really like Snow White's stepmother. I think she's an amazing character. But anyway, by the way, by the by. Um, you know, we can loosen these bodice ties that we have been constrained by. And I think perhaps the anger is something for that. Mm-hmm. It flays those ties. It flays the import, the, it, the pointless corset. And it allows us to open our physical space. And in that opening of the physical space, I completely agree with you. Anger can be channeled into being valuable. But it, I, I would also say that it is, it is well worth letting ourselves feel it and rage it as well at least at first because when we've been holding this in it's been constrained for so long it is brutalizing absolutely agree mm-hmm. yeah um so anyway that was a long by the by but what people are telling me about their postmenopause is that the these pockets of stillness are extending and there is still a movement in the stillness it's not stagnation you know it's it's like that it's, it's flow. Like, uh-huh, yeah. exactly. It's, uh, oh, God, what's it called? It's that bit between the tides. It's when the high tide is high and just before it turns to the, you know, to begin right. to go out. Right. And the same on the incoming tide. And it's that in yoga, we talk about that tiny pause between your in-breath and your out-breath and between your out-breath and your in-breath. And that tiny pause is really valuable because it gives us a moment to make new choices. And that's what really excites me about what I'm hearing about people saying what they want to do in postmenopause, that they want to live more their own life, that they have now seen it. And this includes a couple of people I've interviewed who had really difficult menopausal symptoms, very difficult biological and um, psychological symptoms. But through that, out the other side they are very much feeling okay this is my time now and i want to attend to me and what i need and therefore that it involves finding one's own individual cycle which may well be earth or moon or sea related but may also just be personal it may be you know i'm some people who are more related to the the differences between spring and autumn for example mm-hmm. Or the people who are who are not living in a in a very seasonal country like like here, but for whom it's about the sunrise or the sunset, and so finding our own cycles once our own emotional cycles once it's stopped being purely bodied and then embodying that back, I think is really, yeah, I think it's really exciting. It is indeed. How how very wonderful. Mm. One of the points of Haggitude really was to as you will have figured out by now, to go back to old European stories and Mm. myths, which do, when I did the research project, it surprised me the variety of ways Mm. there were of being an older woman. (laughs) There weren't all just wicked witches. They weren't Mm. all just in the woods. There were very many different archetypes at work there. And I know that you haven't got all the way through the book, but Mm. for example, so the ones that you may not Yes, I've come across. So, yes, I talk about the fairy godmother, particularly in the context of those of us who don't or can't have children. Mm. The wise woman, uh, the dangerous old woman, the Baba Yaga type kind of initiator and tester of young people, Mm. the trickster, the truth teller. 
is there any one of those particular archetypes that you really respond to personally? I'm always fond of a trickster. <laughs> Disruptive. Yeah. Um, I think I've, I think I have personally engaged with the truth teller since I was very young. And it's got me into a lot of trouble. That being said, I still think it can be enormously valuable. And, you know, to, to go back to Snow White's mother or stepmother, I I don't think she's a baddie. I think she's much maligned, this character. She's a conduit. She's a channel. She, you know, when she kicks Snow White out into the, the forest, she, she's, yes, it, it's ostensibly about her beauty, but she's sending Snow White off to begin puberty. She's mm -hmm. sending her off to begin her life. And it is the mirror who's speaking back to Snow White's stepmother. It is herself speaking back to her. No, you are no longer the most beautiful in the land because look at you aging. And then, marvellously, she goes through these, these three ways of trying to kill, in inverted commas, Snow White and send her into this deep sleep. But, but they too are about things that we can let go. Here's a comb, Snow White. It's a poison comb. You can let go thinking that your beauty is the most important thing. Here's some bodice strings, Snow White. You can let go buying into some bullshit patriarchal crap about the shape of your body. And here's an apple. You can let go thinking that Eve was the original temptress and the baddie. I honestly think that uh, Snow White's mother, stepmother, um, has a lot to be said for her because she's a conduit. She's a way through. And she, you know, and what no one ever talks about in that story is how ghastly Snow White is to her at the end of it. When at Snow White's wedding to the French, they make the queen put on red hot shoes and dance forever in burning hot shoes. I mean, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> um, now, Snow White is not all uh, someday my prince will come, that's for damn sure. But, but this character that we have been taught to be so scared of, she's channel. She says, let go of stuff, move forward, stop it. I mean, she's turning up at the door where Snow White is literally in the Grimm story. She's, they, they say, sure, you can come stay with us, girl, as long as you cook and clean for us. Snow White says, please, can I be saved? Seven men say, yes, yeah, stay and cook and clean for us. I mean, ill. <laughs> That's a wonderful perspective on Snow White. I like that very much. I also have a little bit of sympathy with a stepmother. I haven't yet quite taken it that far, but now I shall wholeheartedly embrace <laughs> it. I'm convinced. <laughs> we all need to be the wicked stepmother. We sometimes. do. We need, well, we need to release ourselves. And sometimes in the act of releasing ourselves, we support other people to release themselves. Indeed. On that note, Stella, thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. What a great talking. It was a very wonderful conversation. I'm sure that that will be really, really important to the many women that I know listen to this podcast who also have had an induced menopause. And if I could just finally, before I do let you go, I did want yeah. to circle back around to that and I forgot. Mm. You talk about encouraging or helping women who've had that experience mm. by perhaps encouraging them to focus on the, their own different kind of cyclicity. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you would say to women in that position who are listening that you mm. think could help them or orient them a little bit 
more to 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 what has happened to them yeah i mean and this is this is a hard one because i think that what we really have to do is we have to grieve it mm. and you know it's it's all very well at 50 late 40s early 50s to grieve your menstrual cycle when you're two-thirds of the way through your life already anyway to do it when you're only one third of the way through your life is really tough and for many people doing this it just feels like it's even too hard to grieve but the difficulty is as those of us who've grieved a lot know you cannot <laughs> grief will not let us alone we have to go through it we have to let ourselves feel how hard it is how painful it is and the a thing that I've really been embracing the last few years is it's okay to be jealous and envious and resentful and our culture tells us particularly if we happen to survive a major illness that we have to just be grateful and lucky and I have a dear friend who's had a brain tumor for a very long time and he says no no we're not the lucky ones those of us who survive the lucky ones are the ones who've never had cancer in the first place thank mm -hmm. you very much mm -hmm. and that is and I'm so with him on that one um I don't you know my many of my dear people have died of cancer I appreciate the great good fortune of my being alive of course I do but I don't have to say I'm lucky and unfortunately we are telling particularly when people have cancer young actually I think we're telling a lot of them they're lucky to stay alive they're not it's shit they're allowed to be pissed off and hurt. And because we think, particularly women, women shouldn't be jealous. We shouldn't be envious. I mean, and this shows up in the infertility work as well. We shouldn't be resentful. Why not? Feel the feelings. They're there. They're valid. And they won't go away until you let yourself feel them. Having felt them and experienced them, we can move through. But they too are part of grief. And we don't get to we don't get to go, you know, it's like going on a bear hunt. You don't get to go around grief or under it or over it. You've got to go through it. Thank you. I think that's probably the wisest advice that I've heard around cancer for a very, very long time. Thank you so Thank much, you. Stella. Where can people find you if they want to find um, more about you? Yeah, Stella Duffy blog or just Stella Duffy. I think my blog comes up there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram um, at Stella Duffy because someone else got Stella Duffy before me. Um, and my therapy blog is Stella Duffy Therapy. So it's all pretty much just under Stella Duffy. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Thank you. What a lovely conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hagitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership program, please visit Hagitude.org.